Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening to 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4, if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 996. We have been going through uh, Paul's letter uh, to Timothy over the last couple of weeks, and this evening we're going to uh, come to our uh, closure of this study, and uh, we'll read the rest of the chapter. Um, we'll read the whole of the chapter, but this evening we'll focus on verses 6 through 8. So 2 Timothy chapter 4 and reading at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and uh, his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubelus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Over the 
last number of weeks as we have been looking at this letter, we have been highlighting how personal of a nature this letter is. Paul is writing to Timothy uh, at the end of his life. Uh, But more than that, he is writing to someone who uh, had that long uh, relationship with Paul. Uh, He had obviously been instructed by Paul and someone who had accompanied Paul in his ministry. And Paul has mentioned several things in this letter to Timothy. But as we come to this final chapter, we see something of what Paul was trying to get across to Timothy. Why did he write this letter? One of the main reasons why he wrote this letter was to ask Timothy to come. That he wanted Timothy to come to him in Rome, to come and to visit him uh, before uh, the end of his life. And we see that here in this uh, chapter. You see it in verse 9, but then again you see it in verse 21. Uh, There's this emphasis in Paul that he wants Titus to come. Uh, It's probably implicit in the fact that he's sending Tychicus to Ephesus, to relieve Timothy of his duties so that Timothy can come uh, and visit Paul. But as he's writing to Timothy here, he is stressing these things to him that he wants him to come. And you notice that there's three things that uh, he mentions about what he wants him to do when he does come. The first thing that he wants is for him to take Mark. Uh, Mark, or John Mark, uh, he is uh, the one who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. He is the one who withdrew himself and and who later Paul did not want to come with him uh, because he had withdrawn. But at this stage, Paul now can appreciate Mark's involvement in ministry. And he says that he wants him to come to him there in Rome uh, because he is very useful to him in the ministry. You see something of the, the way in which Uh, Grace shapes that relationship. That although Mark had withdrew from Paul and had uh, left him and Barnabas, at this point, Paul is not holding a grudge. He's not letting the past dominate how he relates with Mark. But he can appreciate what Mark has become. And so he asks Timothy, when you come, bring Mark. The second thing that he asks is for him to take the cloak. uh, A very practical need. And something that commentators highlight that you see the authenticity of this. It's so down to earth what Paul is asking for. He's in prison. It's damp. Winter's coming. He needs that cloak, that heavy garment, that one material that would be worn over you to keep you warm. And it was something that was left uh, at, uh, with Carpus at Troas, perhaps suddenly because Paul was arrested. We don't know. But he asks for a very practical need. Uh, as winter is approaching. The third thing that Paul asks for is for Timothy to bring the books. Uh, You see that there as well. Also the books and above all else, the parchments. The word there uh, for books can refer to any writing, uh, but oftentimes it is used with reference to the scriptures. You read in, for instance, uh, Luke's gospel, how they took up the book of Isaiah. It's referring to the the writings of scripture in that case. And here it is used in the plural form. And it's very likely that Paul, in speaking about the books, could be making reference here to scripture. Uh, That the books were written on what was known as papyrus, uh, from the papyrus plant by the Nile River that it was uh, something in which writing was uh, very common. The second word there is the word parchments. 
which is again a, a word that is referencing the the material used uh, and what was being written on the surface of it was being written on animal skins that were stretched out. Those animal skins that are stretched out would be much more expensive to write on, but they would also be much more durable. And so here when Paul says to Timothy, when you come, make sure you take the books. He says also, or that is, or above all else, especially take those expensive, durable writings. Now it doesn't tell us uh, explicitly that he's talking here about uh, the scriptures. But whatever it is saying, at the very least, here is Paul nearing the end of his life. He believes that the end is near, and yet Paul has not checked out mentally. Uh, Paul is still someone who is committing his mind, his abilities, to the service of God. He is still wanting to grow and to learn. And that's a, uh, um, a testament there to the importance of honoring God in 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 whatever stage we are in, but also with our abilities that we have. Paul here is using and still wanting to have the writings so that he can study and to learn. And so here, uh, Paul is asking Timothy to come to him. When you come, take to me Mark, because he's useful to me here in Rome. When you come, take the the cloak, because I'm cold. And when you come, take the writings, uh, because I need them uh, to study. But he also gives Timothy something of an update on the situation uh, of what is going on, both in Paul's case, but also in the wider church. Uh, Paul uh, explains uh, in the the ending verses here how Demas has abandoned him and has gone to Thessalonica. A sad update. Uh, This Demas is probably the same Demas that was mentioned as an associate to Paul. When Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, He speaks about Ademus there. And here he is speaking of someone who has abandoned him because of his love for this present world, that he has given his allegiance to something else, that for a time he was with Paul, but that is no longer the case. But he also gives him an update as to where the whereabouts of other people. He speaks about Crescens in Galatia, Titus in Dalmatia, Luke being in Rome, He speaks about Tychicus coming to Ephesus. He talks about uh, um, uh, a number of people and their whereabouts. And then at the end of this uh, letter, he sends greetings. And you notice there that he mentions four names in verse 21. And all four of them are Latin names. In other words, they're all Romans. Uh, They're they're all people there with Paul uh, that he is communicating Uh, the fellowship uh, between uh, the believers in Rome and the believers in Ephesus. So Paul, in these closing verses, is doing two things. He's asking Paul, uh, Timothy, to come to him, uh, to meet with him. But he's also giving him an update, a very practical update, uh, as to what is going on in the church. But this evening, we want to turn our attention especially uh, to the final confession that Paul makes. And we want to look at verses 6 through 8. And we want to look at how uh, Paul expresses his preparedness uh, for death, knowing that the Lord will receive him into his eternal kingdom. And uh, we want to look at those verses, verses 6 through 8, with the thought that because Paul is convinced and knows that the Lord will receive him into his kingdom, that we can approach death with a sense of victory. And we want to look at those three verses in that light. 
how do we approach death? And when we look at Paul, we see Paul coming at it through that lens of victory. We hear a lot uh, in our country today about the word euthanasia. Euthanasia has been uh, legalized, it has been promoted, it is being advanced uh, even today. What does euthanasia mean? We think of euthanasia as medically assisted death, uh, the permission for one to end one's own life. The word euthanasia, though, means good death. So what does it actually mean to die well? To die well is not simply to escape pain and suffering. That might be where our minds naturally go to, uh, to, uh, to escape uh, suffering. But that's not really to dying well. Neither is dying well simply a stoic uh, resignation uh, to the inevitability of death, where we kind of approach it with a sense of uh, indifference or ignoring it or simply suppressing it. Uh, that is not dying well either. Dying well is facing death as something significant, but through the lens of faith. If we approach death as just something that is inevitable, that you can't escape, and we just have to bear down and face it, uh, we, we're, we're really trying to ignore meaning in it. Something that is so shaping and defining about our life's experience must have meaning in it. And so it can't be something that we approach with indifference or with a coldness to. And neither is it something that we should just simply uh, approach uh, thinking of it as how do I get away from pain itself. But rather to die well. A good death would be a death where a person approaches it with meaning but also does so trusting God. And this evening, as we're looking at verses 6 through 8, I want us to see that that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is someone who is prepared to die because he sees meaning in it, but he's also facing it through the lens of faith. And we want to see that by looking at each of these verses and how it shapes his perspective on the past, on the present, and on the future. And in each of them, we see how his faith is shaping how he responds to his situation. First, we see uh, how Paul is uh, approaching death in faith and dying well, that is, with the perspective on the present. In verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The Old Testament uses that language of drink offerings. Uh, there were many different sacrifices and offerings that were given to God in the Old Testament. One of them was known as a drink offering. It's a liquid offering. But what a drink offering was, was a liquid that was poured around the altar, but it was always accompanied with other offerings. But what that was communicating was something of a, uh, an active obedience to God. It was expressing an act of devotion. When someone was offering up their offerings to God, their liquid offerings, their drink offerings, they were doing it as an act of sacrifice. This is to God that I am doing this. And the first thing that we see here is, is that as Paul's coming to think about death, he doesn't simply think of it as a period at the end of a sentence. It's not just a terminus. It's not just an end. 
Paul is looking at this, I am approaching death as an act of worship. I'm approaching the end of my life as a sacrifice unto God. I am approaching it as something that I am offering up to honor God, ultimately. It has meaning because I am approaching God in it. I'm dedicating myself to God in it, and I'm trying to honor God through it. So there is meaning that he is attaching as he expresses this. His death was not void of meaning. It was filled with meaning because he was honoring God through it. But then secondly, he uses another vivid illustration as he thinks about his present uh, state. He says, not only am I being poured out as a drink offering, but he says, the time of my departure has come. Again, his language there is so vivid because he could have just said, the time of my end has come. But he doesn't. He uses this language that has become common in our circles or common even in the wider culture to speak about so-and-so has departed. But Paul here is talking about his life as it comes to an end. He doesn't say that I am coming to an end. He says my life in this world is coming to end, but I am departing from this life. That just as a boat releases its moorings and sets out onto the sea, he describes his life as being released from its moorings. It is, he's departing from this world. It's not an end, it's a departure. That, that his journey isn't over, it is simply a moving on. And so as Paul is thinking about his present state, he sees it as one of directedness to, unto God, but also understanding that it is to move on to something better. Uh, as he says elsewhere, he was to go and to be with Christ, which is far better. So Paul uh, uh, has this uh, expression uh, of looking at life and death through the lens of faith. Uh, Paul doesn't see it as a, a matter of indifference then, but he is approaching his life, his death, as an act of worship and in faith. Is that how we think about death ourselves? Do we think that as we approach death, it is something that we can honor God through it? I'm not asking if we are afraid to die. I'm asking whether we can look at it through the lens of faith. Whether we think about honoring God through our death and whether we can look to God through it all in the act of faith? Or do we simply resign ourselves to the inevitability of it and simply move on to the next uh, matter? So Paul here, as he's uh, thinking about the end of his life, in verse 6, he says, in the present, I am, I am seeking to honor God. I am being poured out as a drink offering. What I'm doing is an act of worship to God. That as he's approaching his death, Around him, Paul looks like he's defeated. The Romans have finally got him. He's going to be martyred. And yet Paul doesn't come to that same conclusion. Paul is saying, what is happening is I am offering my life up unto God. That even as I die, it is an act of obedience and dedication uh, to his God. The time of his departure has come, recognizing that he is leaving this world, but not ending uh, his existence. 
But then secondly, his faith also shines through in his perspective on the past. In verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's that parallelism that he's using there. He's, he's speaking about completion. There's a fulfillment there. I have fought the good fight. You remember earlier in this letter, he used those analogies with Timothy about being a good soldier and that the athlete does not uh, receive a, an award unless he competes according to the rules. Paul's now taking those analogies and applying them to himself to encourage Timothy, to encourage us uh, as we think about our own lives. Uh, here, Paul is looking back on his life and seeing it as a completion. Uh, he has fought the good fight uh, himself. It was a good fight that he struggled for because what he was struggling for was to honor God in his life. For Paul, that meant proclaiming Christ of declaring what God has done in raising the Son of God from the dead. For Paul, that was proclaiming Jesus, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, uh, to be an ambassador for Christ around the nations. That was Paul's calling. But for all those who believe in Christ, we can fight the good fight when we are seeking to honor God with our lives and in our situations when we struggle to honor God, to glorify him, uh, where he has us serving him. Paul not only speaks of the analogy of fighting the good fight, but he says, I have uh, finished the race. You think of uh, people with their bucket lists. Uh, sometimes people want to say, at some point in my life, I want to be able to run a marathon. I want to run in the Boston Marathon. And some people will complete that bucket list uh, objective. They will run a marathon. But a runner, a marathon runner, has to constantly wrestle with that nagging desire to quit, to give up. It's getting too hard. And the marathon runner has to uh, pace themselves. They have to keep going. They have to keep on keeping on. And here Paul is using that language about himself. I have finished the race that what was set before him, he has uh, brought to a completion. Through the many struggles, uh, he has finished uh, the race of the Christian life. And then he says, thirdly, I have kept the faith. He's persevered. Uh, and Paul's not boasting when he says all of this. He's not trying to draw attention to how great he is. If you slow down and you read his language, he says, I have struggled. I have fought. I have I've wrestled the good fight. I have finished. He's not bragging about uh, how well he's done. He's just saying, I finished. Uh, just like someone who's run the marathon, they might say, I ran in the Boston Marathon. Uh, they may not draw attention to how fast they ran in the Boston Marathon. For them, it was just a matter of completing it. I, I finished the race. And Paul is using that same language. I got through it. And so here he's using that language of perseverance. And he's already mentioned that it's only by the strength uh, that comes through Christ back in chapter 2 that he's been able to be uh, enduring uh, in this uh, walk of faith. Maybe we look back on our own life's experience and with Moses we see much to sigh about. There are many things that we have made mistakes in, uh, many things that we have failed at. There are many blemishes in our story. And it can feel very uh, heavy and weighty 
uh, as we think over our past. Well, how do we look back on our past without being crushed by it, uh, about all the, the things we did wrong? It's when we can look back and, and do it by faith. Paul's not ignoring that he had many sins, that he fell many times. But as Paul looks back, he can say, I have fought, I have finished, I have kept the faith, I have persevered. But he's able to speak in this way because he sees God's preserving of him, the Lord's sustaining of him, that what he is doing is he's calling attention to the grace of God, that by God's grace he was kept. And he's able to look back on his past then through his own uh, uh, lens of faith. Even at the end of this chapter, you remember when he was talking about his first defense. At my first defense, no one stood by me. It's not clear whether Paul's talking about a previous trial, like in the book of Acts, or whether this is referring to his present trial in Rome. But the point that Paul makes is the same. He says, I didn't have someone standing by me, but the Lord's presence was with me, that I was strengthened by God's presence. I was sustained uh, by the Lord's power, and I was able uh, to proclaim Christ by uh, his, his uh, grace. And so Paul here is able to call attention to the Lord's work in his own situation. So how do we look back on our past uh, when we know uh, the end of our life draws near? We do so recognizing that the Lord sustains his people. That even through the muck and the mire, God has helped us. And that at the end of the day, can we still say, I believe. Paul believes. He has fought. He has struggled. But at the end of the day, God has kept him. That is running the Christian race. Paul here is showing that even as he's facing death, He's not crushed by it. He's not overwhelmed by regret or despair. But as he looks back on the story of his life, what he was aiming for in life, he can say, I was running for God. I was fighting for the glory of God. And God helped me. So his perspective on the present is shaped by faith. His perspective on the past is shaped by faith. But then his perspective on the future is also shaped by faith. In verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Again, he uses that analogy of the athletes competing in the games. An athlete would compete in the games with the hope that they would be awarded one of those leafy wreaths, uh, a crown. Uh, it was their victory. Uh, it was their glory if they were awarded with such a crown. But as Paul speaks of his situation, as he's looking forward uh, to his departure from this world, he says, there is awaiting me a crown. That the crown will be given to him by the Lord Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. That crown is his righteousness. That it'll be the, the permanent state of his righteousness that will be fully enjoyed. Uh, it will be fully realized when the judge receives him into his heavenly kingdom. Paul's not saying this because he's super spiritual. It's not because of anything that he has done, any works that uh, he has done. 
Scripture teaches us it's only by God's mercy uh, that a person is saved. But he's celebrating the fact that there is a victory that characterizes the life of faith. That for those who believe, there is a future glory that awaits them. And he says this comes through the hand of the judge, the Lord Jesus. And it's because Jesus came into this world to bring that victory. The righteous crown that Paul is awaiting, uh, figuratively speaking, is a crown that is something that was accomplished through the work of the Lord Jesus. You remember when Jesus came into this world, Jesus himself wore a crown. It was a crown of thorns. But the outcome of his suffering was to award his people with uh, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, a crown of eternal glory. And so because Jesus was willing to bear a crown of thorns, uh, we can have the hope of a crown of righteousness. And Paul says this is not only for him, uh, but it is true for all those who uh, have loved his appearing. The victory belongs not just to Paul, but to those who live by faith in the Lord Jesus, who long for his return. What is a Christian? What is a mark of a Christian? One of the marks of a Christian is the longing for his return. Why does a believer long for the return of Christ? Because they want to see God's name vindicated. That God's name, his glory, would be demonstrated. They long for the return of Christ because they're tired of sin. Living in a world of sin is wearisome to them. And they long for the return of Christ that they might enjoy the blessing and the favor of God uninterrupted. Uh, they long for a permanent state of righteousness. And so the difference then between the, the life of faith and the life of unbelief is the prospect of Christ's return or even of death itself. Whereas one recoils, the other one realizes the purposes of God and is welcoming of uh, God's uh, return and of their going to be with Christ. And so Paul here, as he looks forward, he looks forward to uh, the crown of righteousness. He looks forward to a company of redeemed people, to all those who love the Lord's appearing. But we might look at what Paul is doing here, and we might wonder, is this not all wishful thinking? That at the end of Paul's life, Paul is looking at his present situation, his past situation, his future situation through the lens of faith. He's able to find strength and he's able to say these things. We might think, well, is Paul just, is it just wishful thinking? But there's something interesting uh, in these closing verses because when Paul speaks of the Lord's coming, as he speaks about the Lord's uh, dealings with him, he reflects on uh, something about uh, his past. In verse 17, notice what he says. He says, The Lord stood by me, speaking about his first offense. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's an interesting way of talking. Um, Paul's not speaking about a literal lion. Paul's a Roman citizen. Uh, he's not to be sent to the lions. What he's talking about there is a figurative way of speaking about the nearness, some kind of danger 
that he was facing, some danger, even death itself, was close to Paul. And yet he says, in that first offense, he was delivered from that danger. He was delivered from the lion's mouth. But as he speaks about that, he says, knowing the Lord delivered me then, I have confidence that the Lord will ultimately deliver me uh, and rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. God's deliverance in the past gave Paul confidence of his rescue in the future. But there's something about the way that Paul says that, that he was delivered from the lion's mouth. That, that language was used earlier in scripture. Uh, that was used in Psalm 22, a psalm that is speaking about the experience of the Christ. The Messiah uh, would be laid down in the dust of death, it says. But the, the Messiah who would be laid down in the dust of death would be ultimately delivered out of the lion's mouth. That the Christ would be delivered out of death. And as a result, he would go and tell of God's name to his friends, to his brothers, to the congregation. He would declare God's praises. And so the Christ's deliverance from danger, from death, becomes the confidence of a future rescue as well. And so when we think, is, is, Paul, is Paul just using wishful thinking here as he looks forward? And the answer is, is that Paul is able to say these things because of God's rescue of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was delivered up to death, but the resurrection of Jesus becomes the basis of why we can believe in our future rescue as well. Just as he rescued Jesus from the grave, so we can have confidence that we will be rescued from death as well. And that those of us who believe will be received into his heavenly kingdom. So Paul here is able to speak with faith as he comes to the prospect of death. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't just say, end it. But as Paul is facing death, he's able to see meaning in it. I'm approaching this as an act of dedication to God, to worship God. I am doing this with a sense of contemplativeness over my whole story. I see the struggles, I see the trials, I see my failures, and yet I'm still looking to God. I have kept the faith. And as he looks forward, he does so with hope because he knows the resurrection has happened and he knows that his Lord is the judge and that he will award him with a crown of righteousness. Death is not a meaningless event. It is something that we must all face. But when we face death in faith, it allows us not only to take stock of the past, but to look forward to the future with hope. Dying well. We should all want to die well. But to die well is not to escape suffering. It's not to ignore death. It's to look to God in faith through our death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the realities of uh, human experience, we pray, Lord, that we would see how your word teaches us and shapes all of life's experiences. Lord, we pray that we would see the practical ramifications of the resurrection of Jesus, to see that it is the bedrock of our hope, 
And we pray that we would see that uh, his resurrection is a sign of the future resurrection of uh, all those who are made in the image of God. And we pray that we would be people who live by faith, that we might be joined to a resurrection of hope. In Jesus' name we